Hello and welcome to The Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I'm your host and I'm thrilled to be joined today in The Pain Cave by a good friend of mine and one of the top ultra runners in the U.S., if not the world, a professional ultra runner for the North Face and for Red Bull. Dylan Bowman is on the other line. Dylan, thank you for joining me so much in The Pain Cave. Dr. J, great to chat with you. Thanks for having me. It is good to have you on. We've been trying to do this for a little while, and I'm psyched to <laughs> catch you between uh, races and, and all your other obligations. Congratulations on your great race at TDS just about a week and a half ago. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, it was uh, really hard fought and very dramatic uh, and very close race, and uh, really happy with the result. And um, yeah, it's always a, a good time to be over there during the U- UTMB week. Yeah. How's your recovery been going? It hasn't been going great, if I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, to sort of give you an idea what the last two weeks have looked like for me, uh, I finished TDS at about, I think, 9.30 p.m. on Wednesday night uh, two weeks ago. And then at 8 o'clock the following morning, I had to leave to catch my flight from Geneva to Boston for a friend's wedding. So less than 12 hours after finishing the race, I was heading back to the airport to catch a flight. And uh, of course, since I was traveling to then uh, celebrate the union of two very, very close friends of mine, uh, I definitely was celebrating, therefore probably (laughs) consuming uh, unhealthy amounts of alcohol. Not, you know, not in a general sense, but more so because of the fact that I had just finished 120 kilometers. Right. Maybe just not not uh, the the most uh, scientifically recommended uh, recovery plan. Yeah. So the, the, the race itself was, was really great. My body feels good, healthy, uh, not injured. Um, But generally my energy has been kind of messed up since then. Um, I think more so just because of what I did immediately following the race than anything else than, sure. than the race itself. Still trying to get your sleep so back just, on schedule, I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, I still haven't been sleeping well at all. And uh, it's finally starting to, to come around. Uh, and my energy is finally starting to come back. But again, now I'm, I spent a week back in Colorado and now I'm in Utah and uh, going to be on the road for three weeks uh, again. So, yeah, pretty uh, pretty hectic, but all really fun things. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun life. And uh, you know, I'm sure as long as I take care of myself <laughs> here over the next few weeks, I'll I'll bounce back quickly. And the wedding was in Maine, you said, right? That's right. Yeah, so good. two good friends of ours. Good uh, beer in Maine. Ryan. Yeah, yeah. And I taste tested quite a bit of it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was my first time to Maine. Two really good friends of ours from Marin were getting married, uh, and the the husband of the couple grew up in Belfast, Maine. So that's where they had their wedding, and it was uh, it was lovely. Nice, nice. Where's Belfast in relation to like? Is it on the coast or Portland area? Yeah, or? it's sort of mid coast, so north of Portland by about two hours. Okay. Uh, really cool coastal town. Um, Really, you know, small town vibe, but yeah. sort of historic and yeah, cool, cool place. Nice, nice. Well, welcome home. And we certainly wanted to get into TDS, which we'll uh, kind of talk about at length, I guess, because that's most recent. But you alluded to the fact that, uh, you know, it was a very kind of hard fought uh, race and, and kind of came down to the wire. And that's a little bit been your MO this year. You've had quite a year and your two kind of high, most high profile races really did come down to the last few kilometers. Before we got into TDS, I did want to talk a little bit about kind of your year in review and your preparation leading into TDS this year. Uh, but you had two really, really high-quality wins against world-class fields, international races, uh, one at Tarawera in uh, February in, in Australia, and then it, at Ultra Trail Mount Fuji in Japan. Tarawera was, I don't want to say a dominant win, but but you were pretty well out in front, at least for a good portion of the day, whereas uh, UTMF was was the opposite. Just give us a quick down and dirty version of, of how those two races went for you and talk a little bit about UTMF and, and how you finished there. Sure. Yeah. So Tarawera is a race that I had done back in 2015, a race I, I really enjoy. 
and a, a great race to start the season off uh, just because it's easy travel from the U.S., particularly from San Francisco. And the time change isn't too difficult for an international race. It's only three hour time difference. So I, I was really happy to go back there. I said Australia, and, uh, but it's New Zealand, isn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah it's sorry. New Zealand. Yeah, on the North Island, uh, I think just, you know, a couple hours south of Auckland. Uh, it's uh, a really well-run race, and uh, I really get along well with the race directors, and they've got a great community around it. So it was a pleasure to go back. We had really difficult, challenging weather conditions this year, and that there was uh, quite a bit of rain in the three or four days leading up to the race, and then the race day itself, it just poured for most of the day. So my my winning time was about 40 minutes slower than my winning time from 2015, right. uh, which I think indicates how difficult of a day it was. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't come into it with, I would say, uh, optimal training, but you know that wasn't really the goal for the race, and I was really kind of surprised and happy with the result. Certainly wouldn't call it a dominant win. I think I ended up winning by you know, nine or eight or nine minutes, mm -hmm. uh, which was great. Uh, and, uh, you know, didn't take the lead until probably 50 K and, uh, I was really hurting near the end. So I, I sort of attributed that to the less than optimal buildup. Um, so I, I took a lot of really good recovery afterwards, um, and ended up gaining a lot of fitness from the race itself, which then sort of propelled me forward towards, uh, ultra trail Mount Fuji and, uh, and Fuji was your big race for the first half of the year, right? That was kind of what you were focused on. Yeah, it was. So I had done Mount Fuji and 2016 as well. And speaking of bad weather, that was even worse than the Tarawera and right. in that it actually impacted the, uh, you know, the execution of the race for the organization I ended up having to shorten it to 50 kilometers. Right. I remember that. 170 kilometers so it was really disappointing but i had such a great time in 2016 that i was really excited to go back this year and get the full course in absolutely perfect weather conditions and you won it in and 16 right on the short course i did yeah yeah it's a bit of an asterisk but um, sure you know sure let's take the w's when you can <laughs> um so thank you for for pointing that out no um <laughs> yeah so um yeah, the race there, if you want, I can just sort of tell you a little bit about that. Just to yeah, well, get us all... you, I mean, uh, Fuji, I think, is kind of, I would say, kind of slowly coming, coming onto people's radar in terms of kind of fandom or following it in the U.S. Um, I think in the last few years, as you and, and some of the other domestic elites have gone over and, and started to compete there, I think people are starting to get a sense of kind of what that race is about and how competitive it is. Um, you know, still not maybe to the level of where you were last weekend, obviously, but uh, it's beginning to develop a little bit more of a reputation. Um, but uh, yeah, talk a little bit about it because the kind of the, the recaps that I'd read afterwards, you, you wrote, uh, actually, I think Coop, your coach, wrote a really good blog post afterwards on the Carmichael site about kind of your race plan execution there. And it seemed like that race in terms of executing a plan or a strategy, or maybe even the degree to which you were able to run by feel and, and uh, monitor your energy reserves, it, it seemed like that that kind of went to a new level for you, at least uh, in terms of um, in compared to your previous races, this was kind of a step up in terms of execution of strategy, at least that was reading the, re the report from from the outside. That's what it sounded like. Yeah, so I would probably call Ultra Trail Mount Fuji from this year my best race ever. Uh, certainly, one of you know two or three. Um, and, and and for you know, somebody after, who's been you know top three at Western States and a you know and Leadville and everything else, I mean that's that's no small feat to to say that that's your best race. You've had quite a career. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, and after nine or ten years of doing it, it's really nice to feel like you're still improving right. and feel like there, there's still, uh, yeah, some um, yeah, good races left in the, in the <laughs> legs, and and certainly I, I feel that way. But uh, I th I would say Mount Fuji was my best race in a number of ways. Just 
from overall um, race day execution and mistake minimization. I think um, it's very, very rare to have a hundred mile race or really an ultra distance race uh, of any length come with virtually no problems. And that's kind of what happened for me at UTMF in that I felt really solid pretty much the whole day. I had one little small uh, period of low energy around 100 kilometers. Uh, but aside from that, I mean, and we're talking 20, 30 minutes of, you know, pretty minor bad feelings. And aside from that, I felt really solid the whole day. And I attribute that to my composure at the beginning of the race, not getting caught up in chasing Pau Capel, who uh, took the lead quite early and opened up a really big gap, uh, you know, within the first 50 or 60 miles. And then, uh, yeah, just having the, the desire and the, the will to fight at the end of the race to try and catch him and try and close the gap. I think it's more in my nature uh, <clears throat> to um, sort of pack it in near the end and be satisfied with a respectable, solid second place finish. Uh, and it would have been very easy for me to do so. So, uh, one of the things that I think contributes to me saying this is probably my best race ever is just the fact that I didn't settle for second place at the end. And, and I actually did, uh, you know, go to the well when I needed to and, and, catch pow with just enough real estate to uh to hold him off before the finish line uh so yeah looking back at that race um you know now five months later or whatever it is uh still feel super super happy and proud of that performance and as a as a race i can't recommend not fuji uh, enough it is one of the most world-class run events uh, out there and you know yeah it's it's not utmb in terms of competitiveness but it is such a great early season 100 mile race and the organization and, and japanese culture i think just sort of like lends itself to having uh a really world-class event so i would anticipate uh, going back to to that event uh, at some point in fact i'm actually going back to japan in about a week and a half to do some uh, stuff around UTMF with uh, my sponsor, the North Face, who also is the the uh, main sponsor of that event. So I'm excited to get back to Japan. And uh, yeah, it was a, a really, really w- rewarding and uh, satisfying race for me. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I can definitely relate to what you're saying about how kind of in the late stages of a race and where you're kind of taking stock of you know, where you are and how it's been and, and what, what you have left. And I, I can definitely relate to that feeling of, well, I've done this much work and it really starting to hurt. And, you know, if I, if I finished here, if I don't lose any more spots or anything like that, that would be a good race. And you, it's hard to kind of battle that mentality of just trying to, I don't want to say just survive to the finish, but trying to just consolidate your gains and maybe not still kind of hunting to move up or go for the win when you're in the top two or the top three. Is that something that you've just had to work on over time, just as, as being a professional athlete for a number of years, just trying to hone that instinct? Is that where that comes from, just experience and being in that position multiple times? You know, I don't know what to attribute it to for this race uh, specifically. I think it had more to do with the fact that I had just been chasing POW for 19 hours, <laughs> and I was just really... Um, I, I think just sort of willing at that point to, you know, give it everything that I had near the end to try and, and close that gap, especially knowing that the gap was shrinking. That right. Getting that positive feedback. To, right. Increasing motivation. Uh, but what I would say is that that experience of not packing it in and and being satisfied with second even though again like i knew third place wasn't going to catch me and to close a 10 minute gap in the final eight miles of the race is a is a big ask um what i would say about doing that and having that experience and having it turn out so well is that it really did give me the experience and the fuel 
to give me motivation for TDS a a couple weekends ago, which also turned out to be a super, super dramatic race. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I would say um, it's a difficult thing to to train that kind of mentality. I think some people are sort of born competitors, born winners. Uh, I think for me, it doesn't come quite as naturally. So uh, again, like it was, it was super uh, rewarding experience, but it did help me learn that, you know, it, it is worth it to, to empty the well at that point, you right. know, and, and just get everything that you can. And even if I ended up, uh, you know, not catching power, finishing a minute behind him, as opposed to a couple of minutes in front of him, um, I think that would have been also just like super rewarding for me. And looking back at UTMB from last year where I finished seventh, but where I went from being in contact with Tim Tollefson you know, at mile 85 mm-hmm. to having three guys pass me in the last, whatever it was, 20 kilometers or so, um, and not fighting for those positions and not doing what I needed to, to ensure that I had the energy and the, you know, psychological edge to do battle late in the race there. Uh, you know, looking back at that and being sort of disappointed in myself, it has helped me to, to, recognize the value in in really fighting at the end of races and the way the sport's trending now the way it's evolved you really do need to and it does make a huge difference in in time and place if if you do have that will and that energy late in the race now you mentioned and i don't want to harp too much on fuji because we do want to get to tds but you mentioned that pow had taken it out very hard and and that they kind of built up a lead and you chased him for really most of the day you've you know, in watching your career from afar over a few years, you've always struck me as a very smart runner, one who, you know, doesn't really get hung up in a lot of the kind of dogfighting early on and, and you know, generally a strong finisher uh, in the late stages. Do you find it difficult to not kind of not get caught up in some of the early kind of racing before it's, you know, before you, you might want to get into a, a really kind of a one-on-one battle? Do you find it easy to kind of let things go a little bit and run your own race? Or is that still a battle that you have to fight with yourself in terms of trying not to go out too hard? Yeah, I'd say it, it isn't difficult for me to not be the front runner or the rabbit. I think that is something that's absolutely not in my nature and something that <laughs> would not contribute to me having my best performances. And I look at guys like Zach Miller and Jim Walmsley and others who like to employ that strategy. And I'm just so impressed with their psychological toughness and willingness to do that because you're basically signing yourself up for, you know, in the case of Fuji and Pau Capel's race, you know, he's basically signing himself up to 19 hours of of utter pain and psychological distress, wondering, you know, where the people are behind you and, you know, uh, just kind of having the stress of, of knowing that you kind of have to keep your foot on the gas because you're in the lead. Uh, for me, it it is, uh, sort of my strategy in almost every race to not be in the front early. I like to be somewhere close and, um, you know, not out of the running, you know, I, I'm not the most conservative runner. Uh, you know, there's guys like Alex Nichols who will, will be very conservative early and, right. and, you know, really turn the screws somewhere in the middle part of the race. Uh, so I would say I, I'm not that athlete either. I like to be somewhere in the mix, but not at the front from the beginning. And that's why at Mount Fuji, it, it got pretty distressing to see, Pow's lead continue to grow at every checkpoint and that he eventually had a 27 minute gap on me at about wow. 100 kilometers into the race and you know I had been feeling really good and felt like I was running my pace and running my race and so I was sort of confronted with two options you know you either hit the gas and try and close that gap or you uh, have confidence in your method and in your strategy and so for me I was sort of thinking, you know, man, he is either having the race of his life or he's going to be paying the piper at some point. And, um, yeah, so 
I, I was I was lucky in that I think I paced it almost perfectly at Mount Fuji, I'll, uh, understanding that all, that almost never happens in one's career, <laughs> and I maybe got pretty you know kind of lucky in that regard. Uh, but I would say that was sort of like the textbook race that I would want to to run almost every time, right? Just be in the mix, you know, somewhere in the mix the whole day, and you know, eventually get to the front and, and finish strong. You know, that's how everybody would like to draw it up, I think. Sure, sure. And you almost did it again just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about your, your kind of build up because you didn't really race in between Fuji and, and then heading over to Chamonix. Um, at least not that I'm aware of any uh, major race. I don't know if you did any shorter stuff, but you were for the third year in a row heading over to Chamonix. You had mentioned last year you were seventh at UTMB. And I think the year before you were fifth. Is that right? No, so I've only run UTMB once. Oh, I thought I went it was over twice. Two, yeah, I went over. I, I did OCC a couple of years ago, um, and I went over for UTMB in 2013, early in my career, and uh, ended up blowing my ankle out the day I arrived and not being able to even start the race. Oh, okay. So, yeah, last year at UTMB was my, my first real crack at that, and, um, yeah, it went it went well, but not perfectly, um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's such an amazing event and sort of wouldn't see a taste of it as an athlete. It's really difficult to not be part of it even right. if you're, you're not running the, you know, crown jewel race that is UTMB. Uh, and so I was really, really excited for, for TDS this year. And, um, and that decision, right, I'm sorry, go on. I was just going to say, yeah, the, I mean, so the, you were asking about, whether or not I had raced in between Mount right. Fuji and, and, uh, you know, I had done in addition to Tarawera and UTMF in the spring, I had done sort of like an FKT project on the lost coast of California with Red Bull, right. which was another 55 mile day. And so I was ready for a big break after Mount Fuji. And so I took two months, almost probably two and a half months actually of very easy, low volume, no intensity, um, you know, sort of what I would consider to be just sort of like lifestyle training as opposed to real training. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, just running when I felt like it, not really following any sort of a, a training program. Um, even though, you know, I was checking in with my coach, you know, every week or every couple of weeks, uh, the priority after Mount Fuji was to just get as much rest as possible. And for me, it's just so important to do that uh, and to take the time to really heal after a hundred mile effort, um, I think is, is what I need in order to get the motivation to start training again for a race like TDS. So having taken a major, major break after UTMF, I then started training again in July, right when we got back to Colorado, my wife and I, um, right around 4th of July and had, I think six weeks of, of really good training. And for me, that's, that's really all I need leading into a race. And the decision to do TDS this year, as opposed to UTMB, that was mostly based around your, just your schedule with this wedding that you had alluded to earlier, right? Yeah, pretty much. But you know, with UTMF earlier in the year as well, I think it is important to minimize the number of hundred milers you do right. and with, you know, in close proximity, uh, although there's guys like Jeff Browning uh, and Ian Charman who seem sure. to be able to do so many for me. Uh, yeah. I, I really want to be able to do this long-term and I really am motivated to do UTMP obviously. Uh, but I think it was good for me to take a year away from the race, even though I was there and sort of got to experience the mountains and the overall vibe of the race, I think it was it was good for me to take a year away from it and to then be able to reapproach it with some uh, extra freshness and motivation next year, which is the plan to go back to UTMB. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of how the the decision came up. It was mostly about the wedding, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it made sense for other reasons as right, well. Right, right. And this was your second straight summer in preparation for that to go back to Colorado and really spend time at altitude, uh, getting ready for going over to Europe, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, I'm 
was raised in Colorado and uh, we used to live in Aspen, my wife and I. And so it's a really comfortable place for me to go and train. And we've since sort of picked up and moved there, although we're still not 100% sure where we're going to be long term. We've we've pulled up roots from California and we're in Colorado now. And the training aspect is just critical for me. It's, I think, impossible to train for a race like TDS at the level I want to perform at in a place like Marin County. Uh, you know, Marin is perfect to train for races like um, Terrawera and UTMF, but for UTMB, it just isn't the right environment to you know, have success and even more so than the altitude component, which for me is, is not a huge factor just because I've always been pretty good at altitude because I grew up at altitude. Sure. And of course, as you know, I have the opportunity to do sort of simulated altitude training with right. my Foxco products. The altitude is not so much the consideration. It's much more so the terrain and becoming more comfortable moving slowly and gaining lots and lots of vertical and steep vertical and uh, you know in both the up and down directions right uh so i i just think it, it to train and succeed to the level that i want to in big mountain races i i just feel like i have to train in the mountains so we went back to, to colorado my wife quit her job in, in the bay area and is currently looking for a new gig um and yeah uh it was I mean, the the last two summers that we've spent in Colorado have really validated that strategy for me in my head. And then I felt really prepared for, for UTMB, even though the execution wasn't quite perfect. Um, and I felt even better at TDS and, and ended up, uh, you know, having another one of the, the better races of my career there. So... And what are you yeah, focusing on course. in your training for this when you're when you're back in Colorado, if you're doing, like you say, a six or an eight week buildup? Um, what is it mostly that you're focusing on, like you say, just getting in these long, steep grinders, you know, miles worth of climbing like you're going to have when you get over to the Alps? Or are you doing other sort of specific quality work? Do you do any interval work uh, at, you know, track specific or, you know, hard surges on the trails or how, how does your training break down? kind of looking at the specifics of a race like UTMB or TDS? Sure. So I'll try to answer that in a succinct way. Yeah, we don't need uh, 20 minutes. but <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, for, for uh, TDS this year, um, because I was coming off Mount Fuji in sort of a pretty heavily front-loaded season in the spring, and then taking a big break then in the you know late spring early summer, uh, I felt really fresh for TDS, but also like I didn't feel that I needed a huge dose of the mega long runs that you might think you need for a race that you know in this case was about 13 and a half hours. So um, my training volume. I think uh, was pretty respectable in that I was probably somewhere between 85 and 95 miles for most of those weeks. I did have one week where I think I hit, you know, 115 miles with, you know, maybe 25,000 feet of climbing. But that was sort of a week where I had kind of strategically done a mini training camp, a mini three-day training camp where I ran between three classic mountain towns in Colorado. I went from Aspen to Marble the first day, Marble to Crested Butte the second day, and Crested Butte back to Aspen the third day. And that was really sort of like the cornerstone of my six-week training block was just that three-day um, sort of tour. And uh, I think it was really important for me to approach it that way, just because, again, for me, it's just so much it's so much more important for me to feel uh, psychologically energized and motivated right. uh, than for me to feel like I've just had the most incredible training block in terms of mileage and vertical and, you know, all sorts of other data analytics. Right. Um, and so. um yeah, the, the volume wasn't 
massive I, and I was doing some intensity, but again, it was kind of small dosage. I, I was doing tempo intervals as Jason Coop would call them. Uh, but my intervals were only eight minutes in length. I think every single one of them. And, uh, uh you know, I, I felt like I was absorbing each one of these workouts. So, you know, if I was doing four by eight minute workout in a, you know, two or three hour run, you know, doing that a couple times a week, I would feel as if I was getting really solid work in, but that the work wasn't really taxing me to the point where I needed an inordinate amount of recovery or taper, you know, every week sort of felt like I was absorbing it better and better and getting fitter and fitter. And, and it wasn't really impacting my energy and motivation. Right. So, um, it was, I think honestly the best I've ever felt going into a race and the best I've ever been at managing my, my, um, my training leaning, leading into a big race. And uh, I attribute that a lot to having a great coach who knows me really well. Right. Um, and you know, not, not feeling like I need to do too much, but also doing the work that's necessary to give me a shot. It sounds like from your perspective, it's, it's less important that you hit right a specific time or a specific workout or, or a specific, uh, you know, weekly mileage than it is kind of just getting in the right headspace and, and just, you know, getting your, your kind of nervous system and, and psychologically ready for just to compete. If you read like Matt Fitzgerald and that sort of thing about kind of doing the workouts that make you feel good, basically, because when you feel good, you're going to run well. And it seems like mm-hmm. that's kind of the approach that you take is, you know, kind of building into kind of the right headspace to allow you to compete rather than saying, well, I got to do, you know, five by mile at this to know that I'm ready. You don't have like mm-hmm. that, that specific um, bellwether workout that you need to hit a certain split to, to tell you that you're ready. Right. No, I think that's a really eloquent, eloquent way of saying what I'm trying to communicate. I, I think, yeah, that's exactly right. I, I aim to get in the right headspace rather than the right fitness. Right. And ideally, you know, when I'm in the right headspace, it means that I'm enjoying my training and I'm doing well in my training. So, you know, they, they sort of are two peas in a pod, I guess. But um, for me, I, I definitely at this point in my career, especially as somebody who's run 50 plus ultra marathons at this point and 10 hundred milers, um, it's, it's more important for me to have that edge, uh, that, that motivational edge than it is for me to, you know, have crazy fitness, right? Because oftentimes when I have crazy fitness, I, I'm, tired and I'm grumpy and I'm not really enjoying it as much as I, as I do when I have that energy. Right. So no, I think that's a perfect way to say it. Cool. So let's, let's talk a little bit about TDS. I saw you at Leadville probably less than a week before you kind of headed over to Chamonix and you seemed kind of, I'm going to say low key confident. Uh, I could tell that you were, you know, confident in your training and your fitness and, and you definitely seemed to be in a good headspace. But this year, in particular for TDS, the field shaped up, to say from from my eyes, to be much more competitive than it's been in the past. I mean, you alluded, obviously, to UTMB being kind of the crown jewel of that weekend. And we've certainly seen uh, CCC take on added importance in the last few years on both the men's and the women's side with the fields there. But TDS really this year, especially for the men, the field was, you know, shaping up to be very, very competitive but you still seemed kind of confident going in. How did how did you approach it in terms of developing a strategy or a race plan based on who was going to be around you or, or just where you thought you'd fall in the field? Yeah, so I would totally agree. I mean, this year's TDS was the most competitive I think it's ever been. And I spoke with Katrine Poletti, who's the race director for UTMB, and she was thrilled that so many people had chosen to do TDS this year. And I think it was probably the first time that TDS was probably more competitive than CCC was. I would agree, yeah. CCC is obviously a a really premier race as well. And that's why I think UTMB is such a valuable event for our sport in that – virtually every one of the races that are part of the festival 
are world-class fields right. now. And I would expect that to only become more true and that each race will become more competitive over the next several years, especially as I think sponsors will continue to emphasize those races with their athletes just because of all the, the, the attention that comes with sure the i mean it, it, it's hard not it's hard for them not to recognize what's going on from a social media standpoint and advertising standpoint i mean you know it, it's it's a niche sport obviously but the the whole world from our perspective stops during that whole week and mm-hmm. everyone is there and the amount of exposure and the amount of coverage i mean the coverage that is online for all these races is just far and away above anything else that you find. And uh, for sponsors, that's just got to be catnip, basically. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so, I mean, it was uh, it was really fun and, and cool to uh, be part of the TDS field this year. And it was a lot of guys who I hadn't raced against, uh, at least, you know, that I can remember. I, I don't think I'd ever raced against uh dimitri who uh was one of the three guys who we were sort of doing battle with at the end or marcin the the guy who ultimately won i ran a lot of the race with a spanish guy named pablo villa who unfortunately ended up dropping out of the race late uh but i i don't think i had ever raced against him either so it was it was really fun racing against excuse me an international field and uh, a really strong field um but with sort of newer competition um for me and uh yeah i mean it w- it ended up being really dramatic and and interesting from start to finish and how did it play out at, at, you know specifically in the middle and later stages um with you and, and you mentioned racing with pablo and i know there was kind of a, a real back and forth there in the kind of middle to later stage of the race and then the finish was, I mean, we talked about the finish at UTMF, and if, if it could have been more dramatic at TDS, it was. Um, right. So take, me to, yeah, take us through the late kind of stages there. I think many people, if they're listening to this, may know how it ultimately played out, but um, they may not have known kind of Pablo's role in everything and how you, know, you kind of transitioned in the late phase of that race. Yeah, so just to sort of like give you the quick synopsis, basically – in the the sort of middle part of the race, I guess 50 kilometers in, we come to the first major aid station, which is in a town called Borg St. Maurice. And it's, um, you know, me running with Tofel, who's a really strong Spaniard, sure. Russian guy, Dimitri, uh, Pablo, and I think that's it. Yeah, so uh, we had a group of four there. I got out of the aid station quickly pablo was on my heels and the two of us ended up running together then for probably um i don't know six hours or something like that um and it was kind of interesting for me because i was feeling so good and i was kind of in the same place where i was at utmf where i felt like i was doing everything right my energy was great my stomach was great my head was great and I was just sort of wondering when Pablo was going to fade, you know, because I was like, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to fade here. I'm feeling really good. And but I, again, I don't want to like push, but I had been feeling like, man, when is this guy going to start to to flag a little bit? And it wasn't until the aid station about it must be 95 kilometers in we're probably uh, 56, 57 miles in, into the race at Col de Jolie where I sensed at the aid station that he wanted to spend a little extra time uh, or more time than I wanted to spend there. And so for the first time I left that aid station feeling like, okay, this is my moment now. This is the chance for me to get away from the whole field because Pablo seems to, to want to hang out here for a bit. So I got out of there quickly. And as I was running down the service road there, because you're, sort of come out of the back country into the top of a ski resort at, and that's where the Col de Jolie aid station is. So I'm running down uh, a service road on a ski hill and a race official on an e-bike comes to sort of be the lead bike down the hill. And, you know, maybe a mile later, I, I noticed that we come to an intersection with another service road and there's no flag. And so I asked the guy who's sort of escorting me, this race official, 
you know, whether if we're still going the right way. And he, you know, tells me in, in sort of broken English to continue going downhill on the service road. And a short time later, I came to another intersection with a, a mountain bike trail and there was no flag again. And I was like, this is this is just not right. Oh, and the so, worst feeling in the world. Yeah, it was really a bad feeling. And it came at just the absolute worst moment in the race because I was finally in the lead alone. And um, anyway, so I ended up having to stop. And the, unfortunately, this race official had no idea where we were, where the race course was. So I sort of stop and pull out my phone and luckily i had the uh intelligence to download the gps into the gaia app on my iphone which i was carrying so i pulled it out and opened it and showed my escort that we were no longer going the right way uh but he didn't really know how to right or wrong then you know a couple minutes later pop uh yeah pablo catches up because he sort of can see me running down the service road right. it's a long field of vision there and so he just kind of followed me and we're both off track now and you know another minute or two later a guy a different guy on a bike comes cruising down and starts cursing in french at the 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 person who had sort of led <laughs> me down the mountain and shows us the way back to the trail and um, as we were coming back towards the course, we saw Dimitri run down the flags course going the, the right way. And so, and Pablo's, you know, in front of me at this point. And so I had gone from being alone in the lead to being really pissed off in third <laughs> place uh, within, you know, five or six minutes. So, um, it, it was a really unfortunate thing, but again, you know, it's part of the sport. It's part of, um, you know, ultra running. And even though I had sort of like a lead bike with me, it was my responsibility to stay on the right trail. And I guess I should have been uh, looking for the flags. I shouldn't have, have sort of outsourced that responsibility to the guy who was riding the bike uh, in front of me. I guess. And, I mean, it's a gracious thing of you to say, but, you know... It, like it, it's really hard not to just blindly follow, you know, a, a, an official on a bike when they're just, you know, yeah. confidently leading you down the trail. I mean, that's. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where it's a learning experience for me, you know, and I'll never do that again. You know, <laughs> if there is, if I do find myself lucky enough to be in the lead of a big race again, and somebody's riding his bike in front of me, I'll be, make absolutely sure that, uh, I'll be looking for the flags myself. So, you know, yeah, super, super frustrating, especially the moment of the race that it came out. It was right. just like such a critical moment. And, um, you know, it's it's tough for me to not sort of like um, keep thinking like, God damn it, what if? But Yeah, so how, know, do, you, how do you do time, that? How do you refocus there? Now you, you have Dimitri in front of you. You have uh, Pablo right there. How do, you, how do you kind of reset yourself mentally to say, okay, now I'm chasing and, and I have to develop you know, this strategy, either it's going to yeah. be, I'm, I'm chasing full on or, or what, what did you do? How did you reset your, your, your barometer like that? Yeah. So again, it came back to experience for me. So, you know, I think when Dimitri learned that he was in first place, it probably made him, you know, really sort of happy and eager, just gave him that, that little burst of energy that you get and, you know, for Pablo, I think it, 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 he sort of maybe panicked a little more than I did because he ended up sort of chasing Dimitri and, and those guys dropped me pretty quick um, and opened up, you know, a decent gap of, I think, two minutes by the next aid station. And for me, I, I'm not going to lie, like I was pretty pissed off for a couple miles as I was running downhill, but I never contemplated you know dropping out or you know giving up and just sort of finishing I, I i really gave myself the time to uh sort of regroup mentally and i didn't give chase when those guys opened up a bit of a gap on me and right. I sort of let, let myself come back to baseline uh, and then like i said experience right like i was 
consciously thinking about UTMB from the year before where I think I did sort of just kind of give up a little bit near the end, not like totally give up, but just didn't have the edge that you need to be competitive at the end of the race to like really race the last 25 kilometers. And so that experience of being kind of disappointed in myself and sort of regretting how I executed at the end of UTMB from last year and then also the experience of having such a close race with Pow at UTMF. Right. It gave me the uh, the willingness to do everything I could to put myself back in the fight and to to make a a run at, at trying to win the race still. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was it was I was pissed off for a little bit and I let myself be pissed off. But you know, I quickly sort of got back into composure and and race mentality and uh yeah i'm really happy i did because it uh it ended up being really really rewarding at the end and yeah so pablo eventually like you said wound up uh dropping out and then you and dimitri and uh marcin i guess came back and had a, a huge battle to the end which was just an unbelievable podium finish yeah so if you want i can just sort of walk you through that as well so we left uh lake contamine which is kind of the last major aid station and I think you have at that point about 15 miles to go or so. And you've got out of that aid station, a, a really big 4,000 plus foot climb. And Dimitri left with a two minute gap from Lake Contamine on me. That's where Pablo dropped out. And then as I was leaving Lake Contamine, Marcine sort of blew past me on the lower slopes of this massive climb and i hadn't seen him all day so he had run a really really smart well executed race and he came past me shortly after leaving lake contamine i then caught back up to him sort of in the upper third of this massive climb and then he got me again on the ensuing descent and at this point you know knowing how the course sort of set up i kind of knew it was going to come down to the final eight kilometers which is on the river path in chamonix um and so it's gentle uphill from the town of les ouches to to the finish line in downtown chamonix and um i knew it was going to come down to that last 8k so um i blew through the final aid station at les ouches marcine was still in the aid station as I went through, although he left, you know, maybe 10 seconds behind me, um, he quickly caught up and passed me. And I, you know, of course, making that calculated risk at the end of the race to not stop at the aid station, I had no fluids left. I had one single gel left on me. (laughs) And uh, Dimitri still had two minutes on us. And Marcin, I could tell, was going to catch him. He was just moving so, so well. Uh, and so I just kind of hoped that he made his move past me just a little bit too early and that right. I would potentially be able to, to still catch back up because he had dropped me before and I had caught back up to him, you know, a couple of times at that point. And, um, yeah, so I, I hit, uh, ate my last gel and then uh, basically just ran as hard as I possibly could that last five miles and I caught uh Dimitri with probably three quarters of a mile to go and um that put me in second place and I continued to absolutely sprint through town um (laughs) to try and catch Marcine and uh unfortunately you know didn't have the real estate and he was just running so strong at the end of the race I couldn't catch back up but the three of us were only separated by a minute and 42 seconds or something like that at the end of the race, which as you know, is kind of unheard of in our sport. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was really fun to be part of that again. Another just kind of historically close race in a, in a really long race. Um, it was really fun and, uh, I'm like really, really happy with how I ran the race, even though I made a mistake uh, in the middle portion. Um, you know, I, I think it is one of the better races I've ever run. It's great. I, I can't definitely can't imagine. I can't remember a closer podium at, at, at that level at that distance, certainly definitely not in the last several years, maybe not ever yeah. for, a, a you know, especially a, something on a course as difficult as that. Um, yeah, John and- Medinger uh, pointed out to me that the Lake Sonoma 50 miler, 
I think it was 2014, the year that Zach Miller sort of shocked the world. Right. He finished first, and then Carr was second, and Sage was third, and they right. were only separated by a minute and 40 seconds. It was, a, it was a couple seconds closer, but yeah, over the course of But also of 25 miles race, shorter, right? Yeah, a six-hour race as opposed to a 13-and-a-half-hour race. Right. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite something to be part of. That's amazing. I want to talk uh, just for a couple of minutes about UTMB, uh, which obviously you were, like you said, you flew out that or later that day or the next day you were out of town by the time UTMB went down. But like everybody else, I know you were following along. Just wanted to kind of get your opinion as to kind of what happened there. It was, I think, I don't, I don't know that anyone expected the amount of carnage and just insanity that we saw on both the men's and the women's side, but particularly the men's. Was it the weather? Was it, you know, just a random series? Of, I mean, you know, Alex... You know, you mentioned Alex Nichols earlier, you know, fell in the first few minutes and that was it. I yeah. mean, just a bunch of weird stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the amount of just top level guys who did not finish and really blew up or whatever happened, it was it was certainly unprecedented and, and certainly unexpected. Was there something sy- systematic that you could identify that was going on or do you think it was just kind of a random thing? No, it's a total mystery to me. And I had a, a conversation with Jason Coop, my coach, um, just like you know a few days after the race because i was really interested in this myself and because i had to fly back for the wedding i I didn't have a front row seat to the battle and i i'm sure it would have been enormously entertaining to observe it from that perspective but he i mean coop seemed to think that the the conditions weren't any harder than last year where we had a, a lot of precipitation and some cold weather mm-hmm. um you know i wasn't on the ground so I, I can't say one way or the other so you know if the conditions you know the weather conditions weren't necessarily a lot harder it's sort of is just sort of like well, well what was it then was it just that um you know maybe everybody kind of raced a little bit more aggressively in the first right 50 kilometers or 80 kilometers and because um, because the, the, the conditions weren't ideal and kind of made that unsustainable. Know, yeah. Potentially those who, who were turning the screws a little bit too much too early, just all, everybody exploded. Right. But it, as a, as a fan of the sport and as an observer of the sport, I, I find it just totally fascinating because it's so many great athletes and so many tough people and so many drops, yeah. just crazy amounts of attrition. And, you know, it's not its not the type of people who will drop out because they're not going to win. And it's right. not people who are going to drop out because it's hard, you know. It's right. like the top, you know, cream of the crop in the sport. Yeah, I've and been... great, great human beings. And so it's just like, man, it just must have been such a tough day. I've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now, obviously, and and part of it, I think, might be what you say, like for you guys at the front at at this level and and when the competition is this high, the the way that a lot of especially like guys that you mentioned, like Zach and Jim, who are known for kind of this front running style and for kind of being like right on the edge for so long in in a lot of these races, even just a, you know, miscalculating that by one percent, three percent, five percent can have, you know, just if, if you're that close to the edge to begin with, maybe that's the thing that puts you over the edge. If you're just, if your calculation is off by just a little bit, that, that makes it so hard. You know, one of the things yeah. I mentioned when I was talking with Phil about this last week was, I, I wonder if this is the kind of thing that we're going to, if, is, if this is kind of going to become the norm, I don't want to say the norm, but more common as the sport continues to grow in popularity and as uh, some of these just incandescent talents continue to come in and young guys with speed and the fields are getting so, so competitive at these big races that to have kind of a high risk, high reward play for a lot of people is going to have to become more frequent if they're going to compete at a high level. So I, I wonder if there's this kind of either an instinct or or even a conscious calculation to say, I'm going to be on the rivet the whole way. If it's my day, if I, ha- if I happen to have a great day, then things will turn out well for me. And if it happens not to be my day, it wasn't going to be my day anyway. And 
therefore I wasn't going to have a chance against this field. So it's kind of a risk reward analysis that might lead people to take these risks a little bit more as the fields get competitive. Yeah, I would, I would say that that's not what happened this year. Uh, and, and I can see the, the reasoning there of like, Hey, let's kind of maintain our health for a different race this fall or in the winter or whatever. But I think the thing that that sort of shows you that that wasn't the case this year is that there was a ton of, well, a couple of things. First of all, like Jim was out of the run or the race fairly early, and he continued to to chomp a lock, you know. And there was oh yeah, no, I don't. I don't mean that that they're pulling the plug, you know, in order to save themselves for later. I mean, in terms of like formulating a race strategy, saying that this high risk approach is what's going to be is is, is going to be necessary for me to be like almost talk themselves out of a smarter approach. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it is uh, the type of race and the level of competition where you do have to take huge risks in order to win. Um, You know, Xavier is an incredibly consistent racer at UTMB and he likes to go pretty hard off the front and you know he he wasn't I think running Jim's pace early but he certainly wasn't lollygagging either right and you know Francois last year he was off the front with Jim the whole race and and I think that is what's necessary to to win the race, um, you know, at least the, the, the way that the sport is at this moment. Um, but I would also say that like, there was, there was so many, yeah, there was a, so many late drops in the race. Right. And it just goes to show you, it's such a freaking hard race. And I think that it's sort of like, you know, for some reason, because it's so competitive and there's so many people who have such huge ambitions for the race, like, it, it lends itself to a lot of blowups because it is competitive, but it's also such a hard race. And we saw so many drops, you know, at Champé-Lac or even later. Right. And at Champé-Lac, like you're 77 miles in and you still have so far to go. <laughs> like you, you really do have the hardest part of the course ahead of you at that point. Right. And so if you've, if you've stepped over the line at even a little bit, like you are really going to pay for it at UTMB. So it sets itself up to be just like really difficult, not only because the psychological pressure of being so competitive, but just the, the way the course is. Right, right. And like you said, that the number of drops this year in the late stages also was just one of the, the weird things was even after, like you had said, people would fall kind of out of contention for the win and, and kind of start drifting back. These are not guys that we're accustomed to seeing when they kind of crack or blow up, they, they don't usually pull the plug. Most of them will often struggle till the end and, and you know, get the finish. Um, I mean, Tim has certainly done that at other races before where he's, you know, done it wrong or blown up and, and just kind of, you know, suffered his way in. But these guys went on for a very long time. And then, you know, uh, Mark Hammond did the same thing. I mean, it looked like mm-hmm. after all that carnage happened up front, all of a sudden you look back in the standings and Mark's like creeping up to like 12th, 13th and looking like he's moving yeah. into the top 10. And then he was, I mean, I, I don't know exactly where it happened, but it had to be in the last 20 miles that he pulled the plug. It was just just this weird, weird, I, I've never seen a situation like that where just like late in the day was this carnage. It was so weird. Yeah, it was, I think, just a total, total mystery and an anomaly of a day. I don't know what else to attribute it to, but it's certainly historic and, and just wild to observe as a spectator. What, <laughs> you know, what is it about it this? My iPad. Yeah. What is it about and this race life. you think that's made it such a mystery for kind of U.S. runners to solve? I mean, we've had great performances. We've had a bunch of top tens. We've had, you know, Tim and, and, and Jason Schlarb have been top fives multiple times and such. But, you know, the, the top U.S. guys like yourself and, and, and Hayden and Tim, and, and uh, you, you guys have had plenty of success winning big races in Europe this year and in previous years, but no one has solved this one yet. Is there something specific? Is it just that it's so much harder and so much different than the other races that we see? Yeah, well, I think we are getting closer, even this year notwithstanding. Um, you know, we, I think the talent of the U.S., I think we're 
as deep as as any country and as talented as as any country uh but you know for for some reason we haven't been able to to win this race and i think in the earlier years it was a matter of just training appropriately right and americans not really understanding the demands of the race now i think they're there, we we have that understanding in in how to execute the race as you've seen from guys like Tim Tollison who have been super super consistent there and I think you know he and Zach Miller and Jim Walmsley among others have the the talent and the ability to to win the race but you know you're still racing against Killian you're racing against Xavier you're right. racing against Francois these are some of the best who've ever lived you know and right. it's it's just not easy right <laughs> and. Uh, and so, I mean, it's inevitable. It's it's going to happen. Uh, I think if you ask Jim and and Zach, they may regret a little bit how they approached the race this year. Jim doing just so such crazy huge volume after Western States right. and before UTMB, um, and then Zach doing four laps around the mountain when he got to to Europe. <laughs> um, you know, the, they obviously both like have what it takes to win and maybe they did maybe they i don't know what they would say i don't want to just you know have my own armchair quarterback saying that they made mistakes but i mean i'm sure it's something that they're thinking about and how they're going to approach it for next year um but i think it is only a matter of time until we figure it out and um you know it might just have to be one of those years where you know, miraculously, Francois and uh, Killian and Xavier aren't on the start line. But uh, <laughs> even if they are, even if they are, I mean, I'd put our guys up against against them and, and say we have a shot any day. Yeah, I think it's right. Just going to be kind of keep coming back and, and, you know, trying it again and again. I mean, eventually, they're, like you said, the talent is there. And I think the that you and the other top U.S. guys have have shown that, have borne that out at races all over the world. And, and, you know, it's just a matter of time before it happens. It's just, uh, you know, it's a numbers game basically. All right. You've been very generous with your time and I want to get you out of here shortly, but just a couple of the things I want to go through real quick. You mentioned you have the Red Bull 400 coming up this weekend. I know you've done that before. How does, how badly are you dreading that five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've actually not done it before. I'm oh, okay. I thought you had done it before. At least get like a practice lap on it before the the race on Saturday. <laughs> uh, but no, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, I'm under no illusion that I have any chance of, you know, crushing it. Uh, I think I'll be the one getting crushed, but <laughs> it'll be a lot of fun. And it's just a blast to be hanging out with my, um, you know, colleagues, I guess I could say from Red Bull and, and sort of just like, uh, being part of the event is, is really fun. And, uh, I'm sure it's going to be a really painful few minutes, but I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. So yeah, we're here in park city through Sunday. Uh, we leave on Sunday to drive back to the Bay area for a little while. Um, and so, yeah, it's nice to be here. It's a beautiful little town and, um, you know, I'll give it give it what I've got on on Saturday. I've only run I think three times since TDS, and all of which have been like thirty minutes. So <laughs> I've been riding my bike a bit. I went for a cool bike ride here this morning, and uh, I might try and do like a few strides tomorrow just to rev the engine a little bit and see how I'm feeling. <laughs> but uh, I think it's just going to sort of be one of those things where. You know, you just sort of have to grit your teeth and, yep. and suffer for five minutes. And, uh, <laughs> you know. So what's on the calendar? Uh, what's on the calendar for the rest of the year, and then moving into next year? You said UTMB a year from now, but what do you got? Uh, you got anything planned out for the next few months? Yeah. So my intention at this point is to do the North Face 50 miler in November. Okay. Uh, a race I've done four times in the past, but I, I've been sort of away from the last couple of years and trails that I know and love as you know from my time in Marin County sure so I'll, I'll probably do the North Face 50 assuming I feel better you know I'm obviously taking some downtime now but mm -hmm. I've got a lot of travel uh, coming up so I would just need to be confident in my preparation I would say the other sort of things that I would do in in instead of North Face 50 would potentially be um, the ultra trail Cape town, um, in December. 
okay. which is on the world tour. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, yeah, I'm doing enough traveling. I think that that long of a trip I need to save for another year. So it'll probably be North Face 50. And then, um, yeah, I have some ideas for next year, but the cornerstone will kind of be UTMB, unless, of course, I'm lucky enough to get into hard rock, in which case I'll be in uh, Silverton in July. Yeah, yeah you, I'm not, you and everybody I'm not else a, waiting on the lottery. Right, exactly. And <laughs> I'm, no, uh, I'm not as crazy as Killian and others who have done both hard rock and UTMB in consecutive months. So yeah. if I were that lucky, I would, uh, I'd probably have to do hard rock. Yeah. That's a tough um, double. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a, that's what's on my mind right now. I have a couple other sort of ideas for fun projects, but, uh, nothing I can talk about at this point. All right. Before I let you go, I have to ask for your desert Island picks. We do this with every guest that comes on the show. Uh, Zeebo, you're going to a desert Island for a year. I need you to tell me what you're bringing. You can bring one album, one book, one food or meal, and one beer. What do you bring into a desert island for a year? Okay, so album, I would take probably uh, Paul Simon's Graceland. Oh, nice. Or maybe like uh, uh, Till the Medicine Takes Widespread Panic album. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And then book was next i would probably take sapiens i don't know Um, that book what's that it's a great book it's sort of like biology meets history in a really oh you gotta read it oh that sounds awesome love it yeah you would really really love it it's really great okay i'm definitely Um, gonna read that all right so what was it album album book food one food food um I would probably do pancakes. Nice. <laughs> and uh, and then beer, I would probably go with Fat Tire. Classic Colorado. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And one last question I have for you. Who's a better lacrosse player, you or Mike Wardian? Oh, dude, I would crush Wardian <laughs> in a wax game. <laughs> no, it's fun. Yeah, we, uh, we've thrown the ball around a couple of times. And Mike, of course, is one of the great characters on the circuit and just one of the truly high class human beings. So, but a shitty um, lacrosse player. I would prefer to be on the same, <laughs> prefer to be on the same team with Mike. I think we could do some damage. <laughs> Devo, thanks so much for taking the time. Good luck this weekend. Good luck at North face. I'm sure I'll talk to you before then. All right, Jay. Yeah. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me on and uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon. Yeah. Sounds good. Everyone else. Hope you enjoyed us in the paint cave tonight. Until next time, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Broken down and beaten up. The years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded. Like a good old pair of jeans Rusty like a proud old car That's drove a little too far And seen too much rain But long ago as a child I look about the night sky And wild wonder man And ride the bus and feel upset To think of all the years I'd have to go through there I was still young I was still